fifth chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to be reading um, starting at verse 19 through verse 22. Um, verses 19 through 22. First Thessalonians. It will be behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. If you do have a Bible with you, by all means, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5 and read along there. Um, as we read the word of God, if you'll stand with me in the honor um, of the reading of God's word, and we read um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 19. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Um, Tony, if you'll come up and we'll um, pray for Tony, who will be um, preaching the word to us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for my brother Tony. Again, we come and, and um, we know your faithfulness. Um, we know that your spirit is present in us and with us, but we just ask um, that Tony know that and feel that to a special degree now as he um, opens up your word to us, open up our um, hearts and minds to hear and understand and take to heart um, what you have for us in your word today, Lord. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So whenever I say the word Holy Spirit, there's an echo in the room, right? Whenever I say the word Holy Spirit, I want to acknowledge that different people are going to hear that word and kind of think different things. For some of us, the word Holy Spirit is kind of this abstract term that we've just, you know, heard like men in special clothes and collars wear, you know. Uh, the Holy Spirit be upon you, right? Kind of that. And so it's this abstract thing, we're not quite sure. Some of us hear the word Holy Spirit, and, um, and we get excited. Um, we associate the term Holy Spirit with a room full of people that are filled with life and energy and vibrancy and goodness, um, people that God has rested upon. Um, some of us will hear the word Holy Spirit, and we'll have kind of a bad association, Holy Spirit, that's that thing that those crazy people talk about all the time. So they act weird, like they do something weird in public, and, um, and then they blame it on this thing called the Holy Spirit, as, as if it's an excuse for their bizarre behavior, right? And so as Christians, those of us who are Christians, believe in this thing, this person called the Holy Spirit. Um, who is he? Um, how, when, where does he speak today? Like those are the types of questions that we as Christians often have, and they can be a source of uh, controversy, like extreme controversy. So if you want to find out, um, you know, how quickly you can get people in a church to disagree, just like drop into the middle of it and say, the Holy Spirit told me something, right? And you say something like that, and it's it can be controversial in churches. It can be a source of abuse, even, heresy. And so we have a lot to cover today on this topic of the Holy Spirit, um, who He is, um, when and where He speaks. And so without any other introduction, let's kind of dive right into the text. We're going to start off again with verse 19. Um, again, we're in a section of 1 Thessalonians where we've gone from longer passages to shorter passages as we've worked our way through, and now we find Paul giving just like a short, punchy series of sentences, commands. And so verse 19 is just a short command. 
do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. And so however we view the Holy Spirit, we find Paul um, speaking of him in this image of, of fire and of quenching. How many of you have been camping before, right? Or at least seen a Smokey the Bear camping instructional video, right? So when you go camping, you build a fire, you cook hot dogs or s'mores or whatever over it, or it's just there to keep you pretty and warm. And whenever you leave that fire, um, you don't want the whole forest to burn down, right? You don't want there to be any kind of major problem. So in order to stop that fire from spreading, what do you do? Get a bucket of water and you dump it all over the coals and the embers, right? So that any life that's there in the fire is quenched. And so that's the image we have here. You know, you stir it around, you pour more water on until it's thoroughly dead and done. And so as Paul goes through these commands to the Thessalonians, he is, uh, he's concerned that they're going to do just that with the Holy Spirit as he tries to work in their lives. Now, the Holy Spirit in the scripture is pictured as a fire that has descended upon Christians, right? Paul has seen the Holy Spirit at work and active in this church in Thessalonica. And he says, guys, don't put that out. Don't pour water on it. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. And so that's the image that we're dealing with in this verse and where we see Paul's concern. And so the question can come up, something that we need to look at for just a moment, on what do we mean by the Spirit? What do we mean by the Holy Spirit? When we speak of the Holy Spirit, we're speaking of uh, what we call in theology the third person of the Trinity. And so there's this thing, this, this thing, that's not the right word for it, like there's this truth that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see this testified to throughout Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Distinct from God the Father, distinct from God the Son, but yet fully God with them. We see Him at work in the world, so that for those outside of Christ, the Holy Spirit is, is said to be the source of conviction. And so Christ says that um, he would, whenever he left, would send the Holy Spirit upon the world to convict people of sin and unrighteousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those inside Christ, he's not just a source of conviction, but Jesus calls him a helper and a counselor. So a counselor will come to you. A helper will come to you. And so we get this picture of the Holy Spirit as, as the person within the Godhead that personally interacts with people like on a deep spiritual level. Not that you can see him with your eyes or touch him with your hands, and yet he is involved in your life. If you're outside of Christ, at least as a source of conviction, if you know and believe and trust in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is a helper and a counselor. 
and a helper and a counselor that knows us so well um, that Paul says whenever we're in really dark places in our lives, like in the plays where we have the deep groanings of the heart, Paul teaches in Romans that the Holy Spirit is the one who prays for us when we can't even sort out our thoughts enough to say the prayers ourselves. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. He's a source of wisdom. And he's also the one, the scriptures say, um, that gives gifts and is a source of power. So any supernatural power that is present in the church, all the way from a, a healing that we would read about in the New Testament to the, just, the, just the strength to fight our own flesh and do what's right whenever we face temptation, the Holy Spirit is the source of power. He's a source of spiritual life, of the faith that we have. The scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the source of that faith. And every bit of spiritual growth that anyone ever experiences is a fruit that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what do we mean when we talk about the Spirit? When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God in the person that personally interacts with our hearts and with our souls. Hear this out of Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes here regarding um, the work of the Spirit. And he says, but I say, in verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. See the big list? So there's flesh, there's desire in us, Paul acknowledges, and those sinful desires in us produce these types of things. So any argument you've ever had, any jealousy that you've ever felt, any dissension that's ever been in your family, any brokenness in any relationship you've ever had comes from the fruit of sinful desire in your life. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit in you, because he's speaking to Christians here, the Holy Spirit that's in you is at war with these things. He continues in verse 22. Actually, at the end of verse 21, I would say, he also says, I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the things that prevent us from seeing and knowing and loving Jesus, that's what the Holy Spirit fights against. And in verse 22, he says this, But the fruit of the Spirit, rather, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
any good thing, any spiritual growth that we have is from the Spirit. All the problems in the world boil down to our individual drives and desires to satisfy our sinful flesh. And the Holy Spirit is the one that fights those battles. Not just on a world stage, but on the stage of our heart. So whenever Paul says to the Thessalonians, don't quench the Spirit, do you hear what he's saying to them? God, who is active in your life, and who is on your side, and who is trying to build in you the type of character and the type of heart that puts away the things that will destroy you, you know, the type of heart that will lead you into, into glory to, in, in a place where you're more like Jesus, don't take that fire that God starts in you through the work of the Holy Spirit and just put it out. He applies this general principle of, of not quenching the Spirit with a specific example that we run into in verse 20. It should come up here. <clears throat> he says this, uh, Do not despise prophecies. So here we get into an, maybe an even more sticky question. Um, Paul says, don't qu quench the Spirit. And the way that you don't quench the Spirit, at least for the Thessalonians in this place, is by not despising prophecies. Not rejecting prophecies. And so maybe one of the first questions that comes up from this is, well, what do we mean, what does Paul mean by prophecies? Like whenever he says, don't despise prophecies, what exactly is it that Paul's talking about? Um, there, there are many people, especially in Paul's time, that would call themselves prophets. What does it mean, don't despise prophecies? What do we mean by prophecies? At its most basic, the term prophecy refers to words from the Lord. Like with no discussion of content, just simply words that come from the Lord. Utterances from the Lord. Either written or spoken. They're words that don't have their origin in humans, but in God. And God gives prophecies in, in some different ways in Scripture. Um, first off, this, we may not think about it this way, but prophecies have different audiences. So sometimes whenever God gives his word, he gives it to an individual, right? An example of this will be whenever Paul spoke to a prophet who goes to King David and says, Hey, King David, like you killed a guy, <laughs> and God's not happy with you, right? It was a message from God through a person to an individual, right? So God gives prophecies sometimes meant for individual person, uh, meant for an individual person. But there are other prophecies that are meant for groups. And so there, in a sense, there are God's words for us personally as individuals that the Holy Spirit seeks to deliver. But then there are also words that apply to everyone, right? God's universal words to all of people for all time, 
the church. And so words from the Lord go to different groups. We have to acknowledge that. And then we also know that prophecies um, come in different forms. Normally, if I use the word prophecy, what do you think of? Any thoughts? Like if I say, there was a prophecy that was fulfilled. Right? Right? You think of like Nostradamus or something, right? Some guy that sat down and wrote, you know, and the wheels will turn and the grass will grow and, you know, and the, the great whatever. You think of someone predicting the future, right? I'm being a prophet. Um, that's called, uh, generally we talk, call that foretelling. And there are prophets in the Bible who told the future, right? But prophecy is not just telling the future. It's also telling the truth in a way that affects like current events. Does that make sense? So prophets didn't just predict the future. They spoke to people about the present. In Old Testament times, prophets were normally um, leaders. You know, like they were rare, relatively rare, and were often leaders among the community. In New Testament time, so at the time that Paul writes this, um, prophets held kind of a different role. And so oftentimes we'll hear, have the New Testament talk about prophets. And if we think about people like Moses or Samuel, we might get the wrong picture of what those prophets were. Prophets in New Testament times were more common and played kind of a more normative role in the church to fulfill, like, teaching and instruction. Um, think about it this way. Right now, every week, whenever I get up in front of you guys, what is it that we open and we preach from? Right? We preach from Scripture. Specifically, we've been going through the New Testament, which gives us all, as Christians, all we need to know to live godly lives. Um, they didn't have the New Testament in the first century. It literally wasn't written down yet. Um, so Paul would come in, say, to a church like Thessalonica, and he would preach the truth, and then he would travel on down the road, and he would leave the people there in a community. And they would have a Bible, maybe, with the Old Testament, so they would have some of God's Word. But whenever it came to knowing how Christians should live, whenever it came to knowing who Jesus was and what his sacrifice on the cross meant, um, they didn't have explicit teaching in many areas. They had a shadow of it in the Old Testament. They could surely read Isaiah and learn about what Christ's sacrifice meant for them on some level, but they didn't have the full teaching of the New Testament. And so God, in his grace, gave the gift of prophecy to people in the New Testament church so that it would be equipped to know how they should apply the Christian life in their own context. Um, we take for granted that we can pull up God's word, like on our phone, you know, and if we don't remember the verse exactly, we can do like a keyword search to try to remember it. They didn't have that in the first century. And so you, you either needed someone who could read to you and just happened to have the Bible, which was rare because they were expensive, or you had someone whose kind of life position and gifting was to spend time in prayer and reflection and, and to hear from the Lord what he might say to the local church about how they should move forward. And so prophets 
were the preachers and the counselors and, and kind of the, the workers of God's word in the New Testament church before the New Testament was written. And so we have to acknowledge as we come to this verse, and Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, don't despise prophecies. There was, a, there was an office in the, Thessalon, in the Thess uh, Thessalonian church of people who were that type of prophet that we just mentioned. And if we look around the room today, very few of us would claim that, like, I'm a prophet who speaks the authoritative words of God to you. And I would say if someone came up to you and said, I'm a prophet who speaks the authoritative words of God, that you should probably, like, ask some questions, right? Um, and so we'll go on to that. What, do we, what about today? The role of prophecy where we hear the word of God most often in the church today um, would be people like preachers. So this is a prophetic thing that I do whenever I preach the word, whenever Rich comes up and preaches the word. Um, we get it from biblical counselors when we sit down in one-on-one -on -one or in a small group setting and someone in the, in the group opens the word and applies that to our lives. That's a prophetic gift. In any case, whether we're looking at the Old Testament times, the first century times, or today, the authority that's in prophecy does not come from the person who opens his mouth, right? Or the person who literally puts their hand on the page. Prophecy is authoritative because it's God's word, right? And so Paul says, don't despise God's word. Like whatever form it comes in, don't despise it. Don't reject it. Now how the Thessalonians specifically were despising prophecies, it's hard for us to know exactly. Um, maybe, maybe they were just ignoring or shutting down those that the Lord was speaking to. So there's someone in the church that says, the Lord told me something, right? And they just were like, whatever, you know, you're a crackpot. Um, or maybe they just ignored it because they didn't like the word, right? Someone says, the Lord came to me to tell you that you should treat your wife better, right? But the dude's a jerk, and so he's just like, I think I do just fine, right? Um, we don't know exactly which form that took. Maybe they were avoiding wisdom, they just didn't want to hear it. Um, but if we give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they were just concerned about avoiding chaos. Um, hear this from another book that Paul wrote. This is 1 Corinthians out of chapter 14. Um, he's speaking about their church gatherings here. And so he says, At your church gathering, uh, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh, in, weigh rather what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Do you guys get the picture here? And so it's a church gathering, everyone's together. And uh, someone you know, starts up and says, the Lord told me something. And he gets into his little 
prophetic utterance. And then halfway through his sentence, someone else shouts out, the Lord told me something, and just starts talking over him. And so Paul is writing to a church in Corinth where everyone says that they've got a spiritual gift and things are just chaos, right? The Lord spoke to me. No, the Lord spoke to me. No, the Lord spoke to me, right? And Paul tells them, chill out, guys. Like if the Lord tells you something, you can wait till the other person finishes talking before you start. Like just because God has spoken to you, doesn't mean like you lose politeness. Like, come on. Um, he says, whenever you speak this way, whenever you act this way, it's chaotic. Um, it's possible that some of the leaders in the Thessalonian church recognized the chaos that was coming from some of the people practicing prophecy and were just looking to kind of shut down the chaos. So we find Paul in different places acknowledging the reality of spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy, but also acknowledging that they can be used falsely, that they can be used obnoxiously, um, and that they can be used abusively. And so the church in Thessalonica had to walk in that tension. Don't despise prophecies. Don't quench the spirits. Don't quench the spirit, rather. Don't reject his work. Um, so how can we despise prophecy? Uh, the clearest way we can despise prophecy is simply rejecting it. So we open scripture, which is clearly God's word. Like if I tell you the Lord personally spoke to me um, to tell you to change the color of your couch in your living room, right? You can rightfully look at me and say, I don't know if God really cares about the color of my couch, right? But if it's something in the scripture, then it's God's word, period. And we can despise prophecy by just rejecting scripture, by not liking it, by not understanding it, by ignoring it. I think we can also reject prophecy um, by rejecting whole, wholeheartedly the idea that God speaks through the Holy Spirit today. And so there are those within the church who will tell you, now that we have the New Testament, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to actually speak to us. Um, you get kind of an unhealthy intellectualism. Just study harder. Right? You'll hear kind of some people say the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. Like that's the Trinity. Um, that can also come from heavy skepticism, where you just explain away any work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Um, for those of you who know me and have talked to me, you know that I'm, I'm a skeptic. Like I'm actually a pretty strong skeptic. Um, before I became a Christian, I was agnostic at best, but probably actually an atheist, like it's the truth. And after I became a Christian, that general attitude of skepticism, where I just don't believe any claim of anything supernatural, kind of stayed with me. And so know that whenever I say heavy skepticism here can be a way that we despise the Holy Spirit, 
and his and God's word. Um, I'm talking about myself in a sense. Skepticism feels safe, right? So we hear about the Holy Spirit doing something, and we say, no, probably not really. And it feels safe because we tell ourselves we'll never get taken in. Like, you're not going to fool me. You're not going to catch me off guard. But ultimately, skepticism is completely unsatisfying. Right? Can the skeptics in the room admit that just a little bit? You live your whole life not believing anything, and it's just kind of empty at the end of the day? Hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. What this is saying poetically is that um, that we work day in and day out, we toil, and we know that the stuff that we do day in and day out isn't everything, that there's something bigger, there's something more transcendent. God has put into each and every man's heart an understanding that there is something more than what we see. Even though we can't figure it out, even though we don't understand, even though we struggle, we know deep down that something is missing. And so we fight skepticism. So if we can reject the Holy Spirit through those things, we can also reject it because of prejudice towards those that are speaking the truth. What I mean by this is it always seems like it's the weird people among us that are willing to speak for God, right? It's never the normal, well-adjusted people that say, you know, the Lord's been speaking to me today. It always seems like it's the people that are just socially awkward or weird, and we can be prejudiced towards them to the point that we don't have an open enough heart to listen. Um, preachers are weird people. Like, I'm strange, and I've known enough other preachers to know, like, we are a weird bunch. And it can keep us from hearing the word of God. Um, it can also keep those of us who are attempting to walk with the Spirit from listening to the Spirit when he talks to us, right? So you're sitting around one day, and you just get a sudden sensation, you know, I should call up so-and-so on the phone. I just have a feeling like I should call him on the phone and talk to him and pray with him. I have a feeling something is going wrong, you know? But that sounds really weird in our mind as we think about it. We pick up the phone and we're like, hey, I was just, you know, thinking about you. It comes off as kind of creepy, and so we don't want to do it. Maybe a fear of being weird keeps from opening our hearts to the Holy Spirit. So again, we find attention. The Holy Spirit is at work. He is speaking to each Christian. Every Christian that the Holy Spirit lives in, he will speak directly to. 
the Holy Spirit is speaking in the church today through preaching, through biblical counseling. Like, he is active whenever God's word is present. The Holy Spirit is active, right? And yet so many people in the name of the Holy Spirit do bizarre things or teach wrong things or teach abusive things. How do we resolve that tension? We find that in verse 21. We'll read just the first part of it. So Paul says, Don't despise prophecy, but what? Test everything. Right? Test everything. So friends, whenever you hear me open the word of God and tell you something that's in the word of God, it is your job to test it, right? You don't just believe what I say because I happen to be the guy standing up here with a microphone. You don't just trust every bit of advice given to you in a small group just because a person says, oh, I've been there, right? You test it. You test it. I'm going like, to be honest with you here again. Like, it is fearful for me to speak on behalf of the Lord, to stand up in here and say, the Lord has told me to tell you this, right? That's scary for me. Like, I have the danger of misinterpreting something, whether it's misinterpreting the scripture or misinterpreting the Holy Spirit speaking to me internally. Like, I am not perfect. I don't have all knowledge. And so if I come to you and say, thus saith the Lord, like there's a danger that I missed the boat somewhere, right? So you have to test me. I'm also in danger of hypocrisy. Maybe I understand it and I interpret it correctly, but the very thing I tell you not to do, I do. And the Bible says I'll be judged more harshly. There's the danger of manipulation for gain. There were tons of false prophets through church history who said they spoke for the, for the Lord, but really they spoke for their wallets, right? And there's the danger of ungodly control or micromanagement, where I want you to be a better Christian, I want you to grow, and so I speak for God way too much in your life so that functionally you may be a believer and have the Holy Spirit but you don't listen to the Holy Spirit yourself. You just listen to whatever I tell you to do because I'm God's man. Right? I'm, I'm personalizing this, but I'm also acknowledging that there are churches filled with people that will do this, that will try to be the Holy Spirit for you. And so it's our duty as Christians to test what we hear. Not out of distrust. You know, like we distrust everyone or we've got a cynical heart but just out of prudence. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is too important to just like treat it frivolously. And so how do we test? The most obvious way is simply this. Uh, if it's a, uh, a prophecy of the future, did it come true? Right? And so the prophets who write the books, Jesus will return on October such and such, such and such a time, and it didn't happen, right? Right? And so they release another book that says, oh, I was off by four years. You are safe to ignore those people. 
Uh, don't just take my word for it. God tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, verse 22. He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. And the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So he spoke on behalf of the Lord without the Lord saying anything. And it says you need not be afraid of him. So you can ignore those people. So that's the first question. Is it true? Is it, you know? The second question you can ask is does it line up with Scripture? Like if we have God's word that's sure and true, do these other words of, you know, prophecy that people would give, does it line up with what the Scripture says? Um, hear this from Acts 17, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul leaves Thessalonica. The next town he goes to is Berea. And he's just impressed by the way that these people these, that he's preaching to are eager to open up the scripture and to test his words, right? So if a brother or sister comes up to you and says, you know, the Lord wanted, I feel like the Lord wanted me to come talk to you and tell you, you really got to stop sleeping with your boyfriend, right? Here's the thing. You tell me someone came up and said that as a, like a pastor, I'm going to be like, well, it lines up with scripture, like, it sounds true, that sounds like something God would say, because he said it before, so maybe, probably the Holy Spirit did tell her to come to you and say that, right? Versus, the Holy Spirit told me to come to you and tell you that um, you should give us your car, because, because God wants me to have your car. Like, open up the scripture Nowhere does it say that you are bound by the Holy Spirit to give your property to another. Um, certainly encouraged to give to the needy. Certainly encouraged to provide. Right? But we test by Scripture. The third question that we can ask, the way that we can test Scripture, is, is this word from the Lord morally binding? Is it something that we have to do. Um, this is the last big chunk of scripture that I'm going to read today. Um, try to follow along because there's a, there's a point I'm going to make here that's kind of a hard point. This comes out of Acts 21, verse 7 um, through 14. Hear this. It says, when we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, this is Paul on his travels with Luke who's writing. When we'd finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven from earlier in the book, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. 
Let's pause here for a second. Paul comes into a town. He stays in a house with people who are known to speak for the Lord, who are prophets. Not just Philip the evangelist who did so, but also his daughters apparently. And another prophet, so we're up to like five people, now six people who speak for the Lord came in. And they told Paul together and urged him, don't go to Jerusalem, right? If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to lock you up in jail and carry you off. And the Gentiles are going to do whatever they want with you. This is like true. The word from the Lord that he gave to the prophet Agabus was apparently true. It was a real word from the Lord. But look at Paul's reaction in verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. So here's a case where a real prophecy comes along. He's urged by the prophets themselves not to do something. And he says, I have to. There was nothing morally binding in this prophecy. Do you get what I'm saying with that? The prophets didn't tell him, it is wrong and sinful for you to do this thing. The word from the Lord was purely, these will be the consequences if you do. And Paul, out of the depth of his conviction on what he felt like the Holy Spirit wanted him to do, went anyway. Here's a case where maybe the prophets themselves didn't fully understand the prophecy they were given. And here's the truth. God isn't always out to save us from suffering, right? He's not always out to save us from the things that may go wrong. Sometimes he tells us things that are hard, not to get us to back away or to run away, but to strengthen our resolve in the face of something that's going to be hard. And so if a Christian comes to you and says, listen, I feel like, I feel from the Holy Spirit, if you do this thing, it's going to be bad. We also ask the question, is this morally binding? I don't encourage you to flippantly say, well, Paul just did what he wanted, so I'm just going to do what I want, right? but there's a sense where we have to ask that question. The last verse in Thessalonians is fairly straightforward and teaches itself. Let's read the end of verse 21 and verse 22. So Paul says, But test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. For those of us who say, I don't want to get burned, and so we put out the fire, we do the wrong thing. We're to test everything with an open heart. And when we come across something that's not true, that's wrong, uh, we, we toss it away. But if we find something that's good, 
we hold to it, and we trust in the Lord, and we're thankful for it. So how, when, and where does the Holy Spirit speak today? That's the question that I started with. The truth is, is that the Holy Spirit is active in every Christian who's a believer. And so in one very true sense, the Holy Spirit will speak to you as often as you will listen. As often as you will kneel in prayer and open your heart, the Holy Spirit will speak to you directly without an intermediary. And he also sometimes speaks through his people, through the preaching of the word, or through a good biblical counselor, or through a friend who's willing to hear the Spirit and give you a call on the telephone and ask how you're doing. We should be scared, and uh, we should be scared of, and we should reject heresy and false preaching and false teaching. The guys that you see on TV that tell you they speak for the Holy Spirit, but they really speak for their bank account, we should reject them. But we shouldn't let our rejection of them turn into a rejection of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our own lives. So the application for us, I think, in light of these words, is to open our heart to what the Holy Spirit would say, but use our brains and not just believe everything we hear. If you'd pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you in light of this uh, difficult subject.